If you have a Bible, please open it to Luke 23. You'll find the uh, notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, this morning's text is written on the back of the insert. And this morning we come to um, just a few short verses, and yet the profundity of them, I I feel absolutely ill-equipped and overwhelmed at trying to communicate what is said in these few verses. Ever since Luke chapter 9, where Jesus has resolutely set his face to Jerusalem, he has had but one destination, and that is the cross. This morning, we will read in such simple words, there they crucified him. And Luke will go on to describe other things, but but we, we need to stop. We need to consider that. So I'd ask you to read with me Luke 23, verse 32 to 34, and then we'll ask the Lord's help for our time. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, and cast lots to divide his garments. Lord God, we are those who believe um, that events that took place in the land of Palestine nearly 2,000 years ago, those events change everything. We are those who um, trust in the cross, who trust in the death of your son. And here in your word, as we've been studying through Luke, here it is. Lord, give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. Um, Help us to begin to grasp more fully the height, the width, the depth of your love, which surpasses knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if it strikes you like it does me, but in all four of the Gospels, it's so simply said, there they crucified him. And yet so much is taking place there, so much is going on, um, that we're we're not even going to get through verse 34, we're just going to stop at, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and we'll pick up beyond that next week. But I'll remind you, sort of an overview of, of Luke, where we've been. Luke began the first two chapters with the announcements and the birth narratives of John the Baptist and then Jesus. And then from chapter 3 through 9 is Jesus' Galilean ministry. But coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration where God the Father went on record, this is my beloved son, my chosen one, listen to him. It says Jesus resolutely set his face for Jerusalem. And so from 951 through here has been Jesus' long travel to Jerusalem. And we finally arrive at our destination. He has been up all night through um, two Jewish trials in Luke. We know of a third from John. Three Roman trials, Pilate sent to Herod, back to Pilate. He has been scourged, whipped, mocked, beaten. He was so weak on the way to the site of the crucifixion that they had to bring in Simon of Cyrene to help carry the cross. He is utterly at the end of his strength. 
And we've heard him declared innocent three times by Pilate. Three times Pilate tried to escape the verdict of crucifixion, and and three times the Jewish people insisted. And so we pick up our narrative, and we're just going to look at two points this morning, Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' intercession. First, the crucifixion. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So now we're introduced to some more people. Last week we were introduced to Simon of Cyrene and the women who were trailing behind, weeping and lamenting. Now we learn there are two other criminals. Now I'm not going to spend much time on them this morning because they feature prominently in a little later in the chapter. But it is suffice to note that this... The scriptures that Jesus has already cited will be fulfilled in him explicitly. If you remember, Jesus told them in chapter 22, verse 37, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, which is a citation of Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide his portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And sure enough, Jesus is being executed alongside of other common criminals. And these, these two men will feature, like I said, a little later in this chapter. And they take him to the place that is called the skull. Or perhaps you know it as Golgotha, um, which is simply a transliteration of Greek, or from the Latin Calvary, a site that we're not entirely certain where the location is. And what I want to do as we look at the crucifixion is two, is two things. Try to think what would be the biblical significance of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of ways you can look at the crucifixion. I've heard people describe in vivid detail the medical explanation for what takes place in a crucifixion, and that's, that's useful. That's not what we're going to do this morning. What I want to do is ask the question, what significance is there to a man being taken outside of Jerusalem, nailed to a tree, and hung there in the sun? What, is, what if any, biblical significance? Someone who knows their Old Testament, a faithful Israelite, what, what might they conclude? What would that bring to mind? What, what does that envisage? Because I think it's rather significant. And the first point of significance, and, and these, these thoughts are confirmed by observations later New Testament writers make, is the first point is this. Jesus was taken outside of the city of Jerusalem. Golgotha is not a suburb of Jerusalem. It's outside. And this is perfectly in keeping, not that the Romans intended it this way, But what I want you to see this morning is that God set up patterns, God set up laws, God set up pictures, which anticipate, prepare for, and fit perfectly with the crucifixion. So in those occasions where Israel was commanded by God to put someone to death, they're always taken outside of the camp first. Leviticus 24, 14, bring out of the camp the one who is cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Or in Numbers 15, After giving the law, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. The Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death 
All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. And so first, in this picture of shame and separation, you bring them outside of the people. They're separated. Another expression in the Old Testament you may read is cut off. That person shall be cut off from the people. They take him outside of the people, showing that separation, and then they kill them. Jesus is taken outside. Now, that may not seem like a big point, but turn to Hebrews chapter 13. It is incorrectly cited in the notes, chapter 13. The author of Hebrews draws some instruction from this. Start in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he has endured. And so in the crucifixion event, it pictures separation. Separation from the people of God, shame, ignominy, being pulled out. And ultimately, we know, it's preparing for the separation even with the Father. And so even just the location of the crucifixion, fulfills, envisions biblical realities of shame and separation and being cut off. Jesus is taken outside of the royal city. And Jesus is crucified at the place of the skull, outside the camp. He's outside of the city of Jerusalem. He is outside the camp. He is being cut off. He is about to be separated and cut off, which is the exact language of Isaiah 53. That's one reality. But there's one that's even more profound. Um, You've probably heard this in Galatians 3. Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And I want to take a moment and consider that reality. You see, even though the Romans perfected crucifixion, they didn't exactly invent it. But they certainly took the art form to a new and unprecedented levels Uh, The reality of hanging, impaling, piercing someone to a tree has existed in cultures that we know of as far back as we can go. And there's antecedents and precedent even in Israel's history. So when an Israelite or a Jew who knows their Bible sees Jesus being nailed to a tree and hung in the hot Middle Eastern sun, Paul makes it clear there's this curse motif notion. Um, So you're blank here. They crucified him. He became a curse for us. Now, Paul tells us that. What does that mean? Where does that come from? Um, what does it mean that he is cursed? Well, Paul's point in that is that Jesus takes our curse of our sin, the curse of the law, the condemnation, the charges from the prosecution. He takes it upon himself. It's a language of imputation or of, of a substitute. Jesus became a curse in so much as the curse that was upon us was moved on to him. 
And in God's legal eyesight, Jesus became guilty of our sin. Jesus on the cross is the only sinner who has never sinned. Because by taking our guilt, he is truly a sinner. Second Corinthians, he became sin who knew no sin. And you've got to follow that up with the second piece, the sinner who never sinned. He's guilty of sin, truly, because he voluntarily takes it upon himself, even though he has never actually committed any sin. He is cursed. Jesus, in, in being crucified, is taking our curse. Where, what's the Old Testament background for that? How does Paul conclude that? Turn back to Deuteronomy 21. And this motif of being cursed and making atonement and removing wrath is something God set up early, early, early in the story. Much earlier, well not much earlier, but significantly earlier than even Deuteronomy 21. But the passage Paul cites is Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and 23. Let's take a look at it. If a man has committed the crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that your Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. That word for hanged can mean pierced or affixed to a tree. Um, but what's interesting is Deuteronomy doesn't tell you when you do this. Here, here are the situations where it's appropriate. He just says, when you do this, make sure you take them down before nightfall. Why? Because they're cursed of God. So the picture of being pierced, affixed to a tree and hung in the hot sun is here is someone singled out for God's curse. I mean, either this is torture and um, mistreatment similar to Pilate. We, when we saw that Pilate mingled the blood of the Galileans with the sacrifices, we thought, what a sadist. What a monster. Either this is something like that, or this is righteous, and this is fitting. And what the Lord is saying is when you do it, and when it's right, and when it's fitting, you make sure you take them down, because what you're communicating to everyone who sees him so grotesquely displayed is this is someone cursed by God. This is someone whose God's particular curse has come upon, and that's why we're making them a byword and a proverb and an example. It would be horrific. The whole point is for public viewing. I mean, the hot Middle Eastern sun is not going to treat such a body nicely. It won't be pretty. So you take it down. You take it down. But you read that, and you think to yourself, okay, Moses, that seems odd. Nowhere in Deuteronomy do you tell us what crimes deserve such a horrific punishment. Where does this come from? What possible antecedent is there? Turn to Numbers 25. You remember Balaam is hired by Balak to curse Israel, and he utterly fails. He just blesses them, and Balak sends him away. But we learn later in Numbers that Balaam still gave Balak some useful advice. And what Balaam told Balak was, I can't curse them. I must prophesy rightly. But if the people sin, if the people are unfaithful, their own God will smite them. And so Balak then orchestrated um, a, a mass immorality and idol worship at Peor. And so we read in 25, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. 
These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. I mean, this is rank, um, ostentatious, in-your-face sin, debauchery, and idolatry, and immorality. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. If you have the ESV, there's a little footnote on the word hang, and it says what? Or impale, pierce, affix to a tree. So this is the first instance. We have an instance where the Lord said, this sin is deserving of being hung on a tree. This is so vile, so offensive, so enraging, this, this type of immorality and idolatry. The Lord says, take the leaders of the people and hang them or pierce them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. This, this is absolutely brazen. Here's Moses and the Levites, and this guy's got his Canaanite girl on his arm, and he's just walking bold as brass past them to go to the tent to engage in immorality and idol worship. While they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly, which strongly suggests what they're up to. If you can impale them both and get her facing you in her belly, we have a good idea what was going on. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So I'm just going to pause. If you've heard this before and thought, man, Phineas is rather barbaric. It's kind of brutal. He's just doing what God told him to do. He didn't come up with this. God said, impale, pierce them, and hang them in the sun. And Phineas prepares to and presumably finishes the command and does exactly that. We, I can assume he finishes in obedience because of what God says God responds with nothing but two thumbs up for Phineas. The Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, and get this, this is what I want you to see. Here's the first instance where God singled someone out, people out, to be pierced, hung on trees, which we just learned indicates they are particularly cursed of God. But I want you to notice, and here's your blank here, he atoned for the sins of the people. Also connected with this is the notion of atonement, wrath, absorption, and removal. The Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. And that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him his descendants after him, the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and what made atonement for the people of Israel. Now, it's not identical to Jesus because in Jesus' instance, he is guiltless. Here is a particularly guilty couple. 
But what we get coupled together is, on the one hand, being hung from a tree, pierced on a tree, is, is a sign of God's particular wrath and rage being cursed by God. And in the first instance, and in a couple later instances, an association of something that can absorb and remove God's wrath from the sins of the people. And so I think a Jew who knows his Old Testament, watching Jesus being nailed to a tree, these images might come to mind. He's, he's being separated from the people. He's being singled out. He is being shown to be a curse. What the declaration is, what the Jews are saying, and remember, the Jews are the ones who came up with crucifixion. They bring it up, not the Romans. It's the Jews who say, crucify, crucify. And they would understand that means this man, we believe, is cursed of God. And there's a great irony. Because on the one hand, he is not cursed by God. Certainly not for the reasons they think. Why would they think Jesus is cursed of God? He makes himself out to be the son of the Almighty. He makes himself out to be an equal with God. He makes himself out to be someone greater than Moses. It's blasphemy. And surely such people are cursed of God. Wrong. He's exactly what he said he is. The great irony is, on the cross, will Jesus, in fact, be cursed of God? Absolutely. He'll become a curse for us, for these very people. And so in God's sovereignty, even though they meant it for evil, their reasons for thinking Jesus was cursed are wrong and blasphemous. Jesus is pictured as being cursed of God because he will, in fact, be cursed of God. And in a particularly barbaric and hideous death, that in this first instance was linked with atoning for the sins of the people and removing God's wrath, that again is precisely what Jesus is going to do. On the cross, he will absorb, he will remove, he will drink to the dregs the cup of God's fierce anger and wrath at our sin and Remove it. And God was setting that up in Numbers 25 in a mass orgy of idol worship. He's taking that, and one of the many, many things he's doing is he's setting up pictures, he's setting up precepts, he's setting up patterns that should be recognized in the crucifixion. It's it's, it's amazing what our God does and is able to do. God takes something as vile as that, and okay, I'm here going to, Make this mark to understand those affixed to a tree, pierced on a tree, are cursed, but they can also potentially remove my wrath. That is part, I think, of what we can get from the crucifixion. There's, there's more, and there's more text of Jesus on the cross. We're not done looking at the crucifixion, but I want to look at at least those two points this morning. But we have to move on to Jesus' intercession. Jesus' intercession. It's amazing Jesus is surrounded by enemies, falsely accused, mistreated, abused, mocked, scourged. Does he get angry? I mean, if anyone had the right to be indignant, if anyone had the right to say, hey, don't tread on me. Do you know who I am? How dare you? If anyone had the right to do that, isn't it Jesus? What, what does he do? He prays and pleads and intercedes on behalf of his murderers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm going to look at this quickly in three points. 
First, Jesus' intercession, Jesus' pleading, his petitions, perfectly models his own teaching. What Jesus, one of the things Jesus is doing here is perfectly modeling his own teaching. We turn back to the Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6. Turn back there with me, Luke 6. What did he tell his disciples to do? And we were really challenged when we read this. And you read passages like this and you think, surely, surely you're talking about hyperbole, Jesus. Surely you're not being literal. And then we read the cross. I'm like, oh, that looks pretty literal to me. Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. Exactly. No hyperbole, no figure of speech, literal modeling of his instruction to all those who have ears to hear. And what a standard is that for us? And you may think, okay, maybe this is just limited to messianic prerogative. Maybe this is unique to Jesus. No, Stephen, when he's stoned, what does he say? Something very similar. He understood Jesus' instructions to be literal as well. Father, do not account this sin to their charge. They do not know what they're doing. That's what Stephen prays. Um, So the blanks here, to love and pray for our enemies. Jesus really meant it when he told us to love and pray for our enemies. It wasn't just something that's nice to put on a card or to sew and put on your wall. It's something to actually do. And again, taking the argument from the greater to the lesser, and this is the exact argument the author of, well, Peter. He's the author of Peter, wouldn't he be the author? This exact argument that Peter makes in chapter 2 If Jesus, who has all rights, all privilege, all claims to innocence, if he endures and doesn't open his mouth and doesn't utter curses, how much more should we who do deserve mistreatment, who do deserve um, punishment? I mean, we live in a day and age where people are hypersensitive and aware of victimhood. And there's a goodness there. People really are the horizontal victims of evil, and we need to identify them and protect them. And, and the government's here to punish the evildoer. That's all true. But first and foremost, we are not the victims of evil. We are the perpetrators of evil. First and foremost, in our identity. First and foremost, you are not a victim. You are a perpetrator. I am a perpetrator. I may also be a victim on top of that. But fundamentally, we are perpetrators of evil, not victims of it. And so when people accuse us and people mistreat us, there's a sense in which we deserve it. There's a great Charles Spurgeon quote. When someone thinks ill of you, do not mind it, sir. He doesn't think lowly enough of you at all. I said that terribly. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I did. Okay. Okay. Thank you for bearing with me my weakness there. Um, but Jesus meant it, and if he can do this, if he does this, if Stephen does this, he, he means for us to do it. He means for us to love and to pray for our enemies. Next, turn to Luke 17. This is also modeling what he taught his disciples in Luke 17, which is to forgive our repentant brother. To forgive our repentant brother. We'll read that passage and then deal with the question that raises. Luke 17 
3 through 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So Jesus taught an unlimited potential for forgiveness, but in this instance, very clearly coupled with repentance, right? That's the ethic he taught his disciples, which raises the question, then, what exactly is Jesus asking? One could read his utterance on the cross as Jesus' wish that the Father would forgive them regardless of their repentance, regardless of their belief or unbelief, you could read this as, even as and while they want to kill me, forgive them. Just sort of look the other way. Don't charge it to their account. Just, just let them go. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I don't think that's consistent with what he taught his disciples. I'm not aware of God ever forgiving the unrepentant, the unfaithful. I'm not aware of it. I don't believe he does. He doesn't command us to. So what is Jesus praying here? I think what he's praying, and I think the fulfillment of his prayer is something like this. Lord God, would you cause events to occur such that these people, these very people killing me, might be forgiven? Here's my blank for point B. I think Jesus' intercession is initially answered at Pentecost. Is initially answered at Pentecost. Now, there's an even more near fulfillment, right? He prays, forgive them. In the very next verses, we're going to read about a criminal crucified next to him who is... Forgiven. So, so God gives him some immediate fruit to his prayer. There's a centurion at the foot of the cross who marvels. This man was innocent. So people start getting forgiven really quickly after Jesus prays this. But I think the large initial payment, the initial result of this prayer is seen in Acts. Go to Acts 2. We mentioned this. I mentioned this last week, but... Because of Luke's attention to single out Israel, its leaders and his people, as the driving force to the cross, it sets up the apostolic preaching of the cross in Acts where the apostles specifically single out Israel. You did this. So Jesus is looking at the people doing this to him. In Acts 2, Peter prays or preaches this. Acts 2, 22. 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And he gets further, giving more biblical proof. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they're cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Or look over in chapter 3, the second sermon in Acts now, Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, and there's going to be a man crippled. And Peter, looking at him, gazed, as did John, verse 4, verse 5. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, 
I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. They took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him. So there's this miracle which sets up this sermon. It draws a crowd. While he clung to Peter, verse 11, and John, all the people, utterly astounded, came together to hear them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, of Jacob, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Now notice he's hitting those points that Luke made. You killed him even after Pilate decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God has raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus was given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. You see the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer? You killed him. I know you didn't fully understand what you were doing. Oh, won't you return? Won't you repent? Won't you turn and be forgiven? Jesus' prayer that his murderers be forgiven is fulfilled in the opening chapters of Acts. At least it's begun to be fulfilled. Oh, there's initial fulfillments right there. The thief, someone's forgiven, the, the centurion. But I think we're to understand the book of Acts as the gospel goes out into the world. As Jesus' prayer, picking up steam, getting more and more results. See, point two here. Over 3,000 Jews were forgiven by God at Pentecost. In Acts 2, 41, we're told. But turn now, finally, to Luke 24. Jesus' prayer that his murderers be forgiven ultimately is fulfilled in the Great Commission. So again, I, I want to make what I'm saying clear. I do not believe Jesus is saying, apart from the gospel, apart from their faith, apart from any repentance on their part, Father, I want you to forgive them. And if that is what Jesus is saying, the Father certainly says no. And then we've got to deal with the fact, okay, why does Jesus want this thing the Father says no? Is Jesus more merciful than the Father? No, there's nothing like that going on. Jesus is not saying to the Father, please forgive them in their unrepentant, rebellious state. No, the book of Acts makes it clear. Father, forgive them. Chase them down with your grace. Draw them to yourself. Cause them to bend the knee to Christ. Cause them to turn in utter repentance and faith. Make them captives and trophies of your grace. And that's exactly the concept behind the Great Commission. Look at Luke 24. We'll get there in a few months. We're almost near, we're almost done, Luke. Nice by Christmas. Yeah, by Christmas. 
And uh, verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds and read the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And so every day, as missionaries out on the front proclaiming Christ and people are bowing the knee, turning to the Lord in faith, Jesus' prayer is being answered. The Father's forgiving them. Every time you and I share our faith to our neighbor, preach the gospel to our children, and they turn in faith to Christ, Jesus' prayer is being answered. Missions is fulfilling, answering Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And all of 2,000 years of church history, in part, is a fulfillment and an answer to that as the Father says, yes, yes, I will bring untold numbers of people to glorify my name. I will pour out my mercy upon them. And ultimately, this culminates in what we read last week in Zechariah. The nation of Israel itself, the Lord will pour out upon them in Zechariah 12, his spirit, and when they look upon me, upon him whom they have pierced, they will weep for him as for an only son. And, and thus, Paul writes in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. God, God will ultimately draw in his people, even as they abide now in, in unbelief and rebellion. Quickly, one final point, and we'll get to our closing song in just a moment, is this. In his intercession, in his death, he accomplishes his exodus for his people. And we pointed this out back in Luke 9, but when Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus, they were talking to him about, and ESV has his departure that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem, but the Greek is simply exodus, and there's a footnote to that effect. We talked back then, what, a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, about how we could view Jesus' work in Jerusalem on the cross as an exodus. How so? In the original Exodus, God's people were held captive to slavery to Pharaoh in heavy bondage and toil and suffering. We, according to Paul, were all slaves to sin and in bondage and suffering. And God delivered his people through the death of a firstborn, and he brought them out of slavery, and he brought them to a mountain and entered into a covenant with them. Remember, that sound, sound, sound familiar? Here's the death of a firstborn. A new covenant is inaugurated. Jesus, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Every, what we celebrate every month, the communion. And just as Moses interceded for his people, you think of the, the golden calf where God was ready to wipe them out and start over and Moses pleaded with the Lord. Even here, Jesus functioning in his priestly and prophetic function is pleading and interceding for the people. Jesus, the, the greater prophet like Moses, is accomplishing an exodus, a redemption, a salvation, a deliverance that dwarfs that of Israel, of, in, in Egypt. That's what Jesus is doing. He's gathering together a people for himself on the cross. On the cross, he's purchasing a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation His enemies are smiting him. He is 
weak to the point of exhaustion. He's been nailed to a tree, and he is pleading for his enemies. I mean, what, what amazing love that is. Um, it's quite fitting, I think, that our closing song this morning, I'll call the worship team up, is Amazing Love. Um, we haven't gotten very far through the crucifixion, but I intend to take this slowly. Let us just, let us just worship and watch in awe and in wonder. Now may the God of peace, who brought us again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you.